Well, good morning, and uh, awesome to see that Dave and Susan and praying for you guys as you head back to uh, Nepal in the coming days, and just glad you had a good few weeks here at home to spend time with family, had to have dinner with our admissions committee last night, and um, man, just praise God for the work that he is doing through you, uh, still accomplishing the task to the ends of the earth. Um, And then one more just shout out before we start the service. Genevieve uh, was singing up here. She's in a yellow shirt. You might have said something a little shiny coming from her. Her and Pedro got engaged last night. Fresh. So praise God for that and love your guys' love for Jesus and what he's going to do through, uh, through your marriage. Um, well, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to... Mark chapter 12, it's page 848 on a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. Um, And it already feels too late to say this, but Happy New Year to everyone, our first gathering here in 2019. Uh, Really appreciate George uh, last week uh, finishing 2018 on a strong note, just delivering a really um, encouraging word and uh, powerful word for us to uh, dwell on and reflect on and really propelling us into this year. And this morning, I have been uh, looking forward to getting back to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So uh, if you're new, you might not know that we began uh, preaching through this Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, in the first Sunday of 2018. And we have spent the majority of the past year uh, in this book. We took a couple breaks uh, for a topical series Uh, One in the fall on our vision, and then obviously Advent on joy that we just wrapped up. But I'm really excited to dive back into this book because I can honestly say over the last 12 months, um, it has done more to challenge me, stretch me, and expose some soft spots in my way of thinking and in my life than any other book has. Um, and, And honestly, that caught me off guard on some level because it's a really simple themed book, and I knew that kind of going into it, and that the whole book really answers two questions on repeat. Um, Who is Jesus, and what's it look like to follow him? And if you're like me, you might be tempted to say, oh, I know the answers to those. I mean, I've been a Christian a long time. That's basic. And yet, when we have dug into this book week after week, passage after passage, verse after verse, um, it's just, I've come to find, oh, there's more. Yeah, yeah, there's more here. And um, as I was just reflecting on this, you know, if, if you're someone like me who um, I'm, I would say I'm more reformed in my theology, and a, a, t- a weakness amongst those who are very reformed in their theology is to overemphasize um, the fact that Jesus came just to die, right? That, that, that Jesus came just to die for sinners, to set us free from the yoke of slavery, that is sin, to provide salvation for our souls for all of eternity. And now I will always think that is the primary purpose why Jesus came. But it's not the only one. And, and when you go through a gospel like this, especially Mark, it becomes this reminder that Jesus came not only to die, but to show us how to live, like to show us how to live as redeemed men and women by his blood on the cross. And, and, and the gospel just doesn't say, and this was convicting for me, like it doesn't say, hey, believe in Jesus and then check out of this world. It's tempting to do that. But, but rather the gospel says, no, believe in Jesus and then dial in. A justified life, rightly understood, will always launch a sanctified life. And church, we can go deeper. We can go deeper in applying this truth to our lives here and now And it's going to challenge us, and it's going to stretch us, and it's going to expose us, and it's going to be awesome. A good pain. And I share that 
especially as we pick up things where we left off in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Because Jesus is going to use an interaction with the Pharisees um, as an opportunity to teach his followers how to live. And the line we're going to see from Jesus is a simple line. It's a famous line. It remains one of the most relevant teachings of Jesus for the church across history and across the world today. And he's going to address the topic. How should the people of God relate to the government? And he's going to get there by answering a question about taxes. Connect the dots. We're going to start 2019 with a sermon about politics and money. So happy new year, Grace Church. Um, Love, Mark. And we're going in this morning. Um, So would you follow along with me? It's only a few verses. Chapter 12, picking it up in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It's possible you might be thinking as you hear that, that how could this possibly be relevant to us today, but by the end, I hope you will see that this passage can and does do as much to shape a Christian worldview in the church than any other in the Bible. And, spoiler alert for the end, the main point, it's not about the government, and it's not about money. But we gotta talk about those things to get to the main point. So, um, to quickly catch us up and remind us of the context here, uh, in Mark 12, this is Tuesday morning of Holy Week, uh, the final week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. He uh, got to Jerusalem on Sunday, he went and flipped the tables in the temple on Monday, and then when he and his disciples returned to the temple on Tuesday, there becomes this series of confrontational dialogues between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the kind of governing body of Jews in the capital city ruling over the Jewish people at this time. And this is the second of five straight controversies that Mark's going to list in a row. And this time, the Sanhedrin stormed off after Jesus told them the parable about the tenants last time. They were angry. They left. And they say in verse 12 that they, they being the Sanhedrin, sent to him the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. And that's strange. If you remember back, this happened once in chapter 3, and now we see it again. Uh, Do you know why that's strange? You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. They hated each other. They were Jewish men on opposite opposite sides of the political spectrum, as Israel would relate to the Roman Empire. Roman Empire being the ruling body that ruled over really the whole Middle East, really from England through uh, the eastern side of the Middle East at this time in history. And so let me just make it as simplistic as possible for us to understand. The Pharisees were the ultra-conservative side of the Jewish people who thought any mixture with Rome was sinful. 
And so they had to maintain a subculture that kept any kind of Roman influences out. They hated not having their own autonomous rule. They sought to protect their Jewish culture by adhering to a very strict Jewish law. And they generally represented the middle class and the lower class of the Jewish people. The Herodians were the ultra-liberal side that favored a strong Roman oversight of Israel that advocated for as much partnership with Roman leadership as possible, and, and they generally represented the very upper class of the Jews. And so it's not an exaggeration to say these groups hated each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians, but you see, they had a common enemy in Jesus. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was threatening their religious rule over the people. The Herodians hated Jesus because he was threatening their political advantage with Rome. So their mutual hatred unite them here because they want this guy gone. And they join forces and they approach Jesus in order to trap him. And the trap is set. Do you see how they set it? With some flattery. And then a simple question. Uh, should we pay these taxes or not? But there's flattery first. Oh, teacher. We know you are true. We know you don't care about appearances. Your teaching is the way of God. You see, it's flattery with these selfish intentions because they want to expose him in front of all the people around. And you know, it's a very interesting side note. Anytime the Bible talks about flattery, it's rarely positive because flattery can often blind us to somebody's true intentions. And then the question they try to trap him to set him up for this kind of simple yes-no answer. Um, there are times when asking a clarifying question, looking for a yes or a no is helpful, right? It brings clarity. But there are times when a yes-no question is not helpful and is really not fair. So if somebody, let's say your coworker comes up to you right in front of your boss in the first week of January, and he says this, um, hey, are you still taking off more time than you should be? It's a trap. Right? Any way you answer that, you're going to get exposed. You're like, well, wait a minute, that's not the right question. And so what happens is you have a trap set for Jesus. If he says yes, pay the taxes, it will anger the Pharisees, and the majority of the Jewish nation who can't stand the tax that's placed on them um, would, would turn against them. But if he says no, don't pay the tax, it would inflame the Herodians who can go to the political leaders and say, this guy is trying to spark a revolt against Rome, which can get him arrested and killed. So Pharisees, Herodians, they're going, this is win-win. Whatever his answer, we can take him down. Jesus knows their intentions and just says back, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius. That was the required tax. It was worth a full day's wage for the common laborer. It was a census tax put in place by the Roman Empire over everybody in the territory. He holds up the coin. He goes, hey, whose picture is this? Whose likeness is this? The same word we have image in the Bible. And the denarius at that time had an image of Caesar Tiberius, the, the emperor at that time in history. And on the front it said in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Then on the back it had an inscription that said in Latin, I'm probably saying this wrong, Pontifex Maximus, which meant high priest. So you could see why the Jews just hated this tax. It was complete idolatry. It, it, was, it was son of the most divine. It was high priest. And not to mention, like newsflash, people don't like when you mess with their money. Like that's not just a history thing. Like they earned these hard-earned dollars, that, and that's underlying also about why you reach in in our pockets. Why do we have to pay for this? We don't even like this government. 
and all that sets the stage for Jesus' most impactful line that has laid the foundation for the Christian worldview of God and government ever since. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render means give back. And give back to God the things that are God's. And it's nothing short of brilliant how he gets there. Because he speaks about image. He goes, whose image is this? Whose likeness is this? Oh, it's, it's Caesar's. Okay, so give to Caesar, which is his. That's imprinted on this coin. Pay the tax. But give to God what is God's. So back in Genesis 1, we are told God made man and woman what? In his image, in his likeness. Same word in the Mark 12 was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Genesis 1. So yes, give Caesar some of your money, honor your government, but give God all of you, all of your worship. And so this line could be summed up, I think, this way. Honor the government, but only worship God. And the successful spread of the gospel and the growth of the church to the ends of the earth, which is still ongoing in places like Nepal and all around the world over the past 2,000 years, has been successful in part because of the guidance Jesus has given on how churches should relate to the world and relate to governing authorities that rule over them. So with that said, this is one sermon. This could be 18 hours uh, for how these the implications that we should take from this passage. But I want to limit myself to four. What's just four simple implications we could take for the church? Practical wisdom for us going into 2019. Um, number one, be subject to the government. Like, word of caution, like, we're tempted to rush to be like, what's this mean for U.S. in 2019 when Trump is president, right? Like, that's what we all want to know. But we can't rush there. We can't start there because this is a principle spoken by Jesus. If this is true, if this passage is true, it has to be true for all people and all churches across all of history in the world. And the principle is this. A government is a gift from God. Okay, hang with me here. Listen. Even a bad government is better than no government. Okay, so let's just stay in the immediate context of where Jesus is, um, because Rome is a great example. Jesus is going to be executed by the Roman government three days after he's going to say this line. And yet, he is still saying to these people so that everybody could hear him, yeah, pay the tax. Honor the government. Why? Why would he do that? This was his chance to finally like start a revolt and a rebellion, which everyone thought he was there to do. But he doesn't. Why? Because even a bad government is better than no government. Jesus does not want the early church to start a revolt because what would happen is they would get crushed. And the church would fizzle out and not be able to carry out its calling to make disciples of all nations. Um, Peter and Paul, uh, Peter being there hearing this line firsthand, Paul being an apostle uh, through Jesus coming to him in person later on in the book of Acts will be the primary writers to the churches in the New Testament and they will build on this foundation that Jesus lays down. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, really important passages and they bring some practical wisdom to the church. Uh, People in the church are generally asking, what do we do? This government's terrible. Like, they are persecuting us. Do we, what do we do? Do we band together? Do we start an army? How, how do we get out of this? Do we just not pay anything and not even listen and just live on our own? What do we do? Peter and Paul both say, building on the foundation of Jesus, honor the government, but fear and worship God alone. And Peter and Paul will say this during a different reign, about 30 years after Jesus, during the reign of Nero. And go read up on your history this afternoon of Nero. The guy was a lunatic. 
like out of his mind. And a big persecutor of the early church. And both these men, Peter and Paul, would one day in Rome get executed by the empire. And yet, in our inerrant, inspired word of God, they both line up with Jesus. Honor the government, but worship God. And the reason all throughout the scripture is the same, a bad government is still better than no government. Because government is ordained by God as an authority to uh, bring some level of stability in a region. And Paul tells us its main job is to punish evil and reward what's good. And it's basic terms, that's what a government is for. Punish what's evil, reward what is good. So that, among other things, it can pave the way for the church to do its kingdom-building work. So think about Paul and his missionary journeys. Um, Paul, in order to get to all these different cities, he had to use roads that were built by the Roman Empire. He boarded ships that had the ability to travel freely through the empire. He would start tent-making businesses to sustain his mission's work within the compounds of government policies. And, and not to mention, even today, there are a couple places in the world that you could go to and there is no government at all, where everyone just does what's right, what seems right to them. And you know what? It's horrifying. Like if, if, if let's say, our government would say, you know what? Things are really decisive. Nobody can agree. Starting tomorrow, no government. True freedom in its purest form. There's no more rules. Like everyone's just free to do what you want. You know what? That would be a horrifying place to live where everyone could just do what's right, what seems right to them. We would be in that kind of world for 10 minutes and we'd be hoping for some kind of government authority even if we thought it was a bad one. So that's number one, be subject to the government. Number two, disobey when the government interferes with worship. The second point, not a contradiction to the first. The two need to be held in tandem together. That the biblical principle laid down by Jesus, seen throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, is that disobedience to a governing authority is warranted when they seek to interfere with your worship of God. Give back to God what is God's, which is you, your worship. And if you're kept from doing that, then it's right to disobey. Again, the examples here, Jesus, when he'd be on trial, Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor, saw how terrible these accusations were. We're just like, man, just for can't, like you're saying, the son of, you're saying like you're the son of God. If you just do that, like you won't get killed. I, 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 can, I can go to bat for you then, but I can't protect you now. Just say it. Jesus, silent. Because he knows he's meant to go to the cross. Peter and Paul were seen ultimately as disruptors to the Roman rule and reign. They were called to stand down, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't help but speak of what they've seen and heard. They said, we, this is our line in the sand. Go back to the Old Testament. This principle was in place then. Do you remember when Israel was taken into exile to Babylon? The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29, hey, be citizen, good citizens of the land you're going to. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, which is about to take you into exile. And then Daniel is this perfect example. He honors Babylon. He's elevated to a lofty position, all the while never compromising his worship. Those three guys, famous guys in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace. Why? Because they could not submit to a newly passed law to bow down and worship an image of the emperor. You see, it is right to disobey an authority over you when it seeks to interfere with your worship of God. And again, we just look contemporary around the world, we still see this happening. 
Uh, the Chinese government, if you've been watching the news, have always kind of been in this realm, but in the last year has increased their crackdown on churches in general and pastors in particular. And there's a pastor, I'm probably saying this wrong, I apologize if I am, Pastor Wang Yi, currently in custody. And if you go online, there's a clip of his sermon from back in September calling for the church to remain steadfast in their commitment to Jesus Christ, whatever the consequences. No matter the persecution, worship Jesus Christ. He's telling his church this, but he never calls his church to revolt. He says, pay your taxes, right? Like, be a Chinese citizen, honor the government, but do not stop your worship because you're told to. Sure enough, Pastor Wong got arrested and he's still in custody for the reason of refusing to stop preaching the gospel, which was a threat to the Chinese government. Side note, you know what gave me chills about this story? The Sunday after Pastor Wong got arrested, the church still gathered for worship. And it was this powerful reminder for me that we often see in places, not in America, but in places like China, the necessity and the power of the corporate gathering of the church. Like, we don't do this because it's convenient. We, we, we gather because it's necessary for our perseverance in the faith. We won't do it without it. That God does something in the corporate gathering of his people that awakens, strengthens, and sustains faith. So those are two building blocks for all believers at all times and all places. Be subject to the government, but disobey when the government interferes with or prohibits your worship of God. So let's narrow it down to number three. Let's narrow it down to Grace Church. Here is, I think, our call as a church in 2019. Be engaged exiles. Be engaged exiles. That we in the United States are called to follow Jesus in this principle, just like the church across history And now we live in a government structure, no matter who's in office, we live in a structure of government that provides more freedom than the majority of the church has faced over the last 2,000 years. And we are called to be engaged in this world, not checked out, but also never forget that we are primarily belonging to another kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that began long before America did, and one that will last long after America is gone. And there's, I think, a couple ways we can get that wrong. There's a couple ways Christians can go off the rails here. Um, first is by failing in our duty to be engaged, to be engaged citizens that seek the peace and prosperity of the land that we're in. So we're either uh, advocating rebelling against the authority, revolting against it, or more common, we're just kind of checked out. I don't really care what happens over there. We're just about Jesus in here, and, and we try to act like the two can be totally separate when they can't. So that's one way we can get that wrong, but, but the other way, and the other side of the pendulum, we have to be careful here, is that we can forget that we're exiles. And there can be a borderline worship of America or some of its elected officials where people in the church and Christians will say things like, you know, you really can't consider yourself a Christian unless you vote for this person. Or you really can't consider yourself a believer and advocate for that policy. And what happens is we get this really kind of confused middle ground where becoming a Christian all of a sudden becomes synonymous with being an American. And and, and the flag becomes synonymous with the cross. And it's confusing at best. It's really dangerous at worst. So don't be checked out of the country and don't worship the country. Where does that leave us? Engaged exiles. 
And there's just a lot of practical reasons why we ought to be engaged in exiles, but primarily it's because our most important work is kingdom-building work. And the church will be most effective in our kingdom-building work as disciples of Jesus Christ if we abide to, in, in, in large respect, the laws of the United States. So there's two books I'm going to reference in the next few minutes that I would really recommend. Because again, I'm limited to one sermon, can only going to give you a little bit. Two books that, if this is a topic that interests you in 2019, awesome books. First, Russell Moore Onward. Here's a quote on the screen. Our call is to be an engaged alienation, a Christianity that preserves the distinctness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. So the application for us is, Grace Church, be subject to your government. Be an engaged citizen. Let us pay our taxes and obey the laws. Let us vote and have an interest in those who rule over this town and state and country because we have that freedom. So honor the government and worship God. Now, I'm going to be very quick here than I need to be, but there are times in this place where being an engaged exile includes being civil yet vocal in our opposition where necessary. And it's right here where the tension starts to rise in the room, right? It's here where well-meaning Christians, even in the same church, might disagree sharply on what things we should be for and against that the Bible might not be crystal clear on. The next book, Jonathan Lehman, When the Nations Rage, here's a quote, When something is clear in the Bible, let's be explicit and clear. But when the Bible isn't explicit and clear, let's leave room for Christian freedom. You've heard the saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That's a good rule of thumb. Here's what we all know on some level. America is not perfect. And there's going to be policies and laws that we won't like. And if we like them now, we won't like them in 10 years from now. And if we don't like them now, we'll like them in 10 years from now. That's just the way it ebbs and flows. But the reality is across our church's history, we have some black eyes, right? We, we have some things that, that we are really not proud of. Let's just start with chattel slavery being written into the Constitution, then leading to segregation, then leading to Jim Crow, then leading to just systemic racism that still occurs very much. And if we feel like it doesn't, it's probably because we're not experiencing it but it's there. And so today, 2019, there are um, some things going on in our country that, that the church will not like. But more often than not, there's going to be laws that on some levels, like some people will really be for, some people will really be against, and a lot of people just won't care in the middle. But that's been the case for the church across history. And the job of each church in every generation, in every structure of government, is to decide what's the best way to navigate this. Because our job is to make disciples. But we do it in a political context, like every church has. So what do we do? Like it really requires wisdom. Especially when we get to areas or topics that become very heated. When we start talking about immigration and border security and systemic housing discriminations and marriage and gender and abortion and on and on and on. That we need one another in the local church to collectively help one another through these gray areas. Who we're going to cling to the word as our foundational guide and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ kind of navigate where, where the Bible's not crystal clear on, where there's just not a right answer. And we have freedom to voice our opposition, but again, we need wisdom. What's the best way to do that? Should we go pick it downtown over something? Should we, should we go gather and, and march? I mean, there's times across history we saw that's warranted. And it was a good thing that the church was at the front lines of. Should we just get on our phones and rail against other people on social media? 
and just demonize and get back and forth? Is that, is, that, is that the Christian witness that we should do to vocalize our opposition? Should we just be silent? Because it's kind of, I don't want to mess with that, so I'm just going to sit in my home, close the door, and pray. Should we do that? Depends on the topic, right? Depends on the time. Depends on the situation. But we need each other in the church to navigate these things. Again, Lehman in his book sums it up best. Last quote from him. What's the point here? A few nations are truly awful. Most are mixed. And the heart of a citizen of heaven should reflect that fact that we thank God for the good, we acknowledge and work against the bad, and we keep our hope fixed on a heavenly city throughout it all. It's a great word. You know, I said at the beginning that as we set the close, the main point, it's not government, and it's not taxes, even though it gives us practical wisdom for those things. So what is the main point that Jesus is trying to get across? Number four, lastly, give, all, give your all to God in worship. You know, the first part of his line gets all the attention because that's a very polarizing topic, but oftentimes we leave off the most important part of what he's saying. Render to God the things that are God's. Give back to God what is his. And as we hit on earlier, what is God's? You. All of you. That all of you were created in God's image. His imprint is all over you. And so you give your life to him in worship and you hold nothing back. Because it's a very gray area on how much and what we should submit to the government. We, we just covered that. Very gray area. We can agree to disagree on some areas. But the call in our lives that is very black and white is give all of yourself to the Lord. All of your life. All of your hope. All of your joy and your identity. Hold nothing back. Maybe it could be summed up this way. Because in the immediate context of the question, um, hey, should we pay them? Should we pay taxes? The difference in our approach is how much do I have to give to the government versus how much can I give to God? You see the difference? Um, Rochelle and I, just like all of you in the next couple months, with joy set before us, is going to get prepared for tax season. (laughs) You're going to get all the things you need to get in order, all your forms, all your things, send them in, do them yourself, but you're going to be thinking about taxes and money and the question underlying All of it is going to be the same. How much do I have to give? What's the minimum? No one's looking for above that. And Jesus contrasts that with, when it comes to the building and the thriving of the eternal kingdom, we are citizens of the church. And the question becomes, how much can I give? And it changes everything. And I've been honest with you before, um, this idea of generosity has always been a struggle for me. I am inherently much more selfish and greedy than my wife. And so my approach, uh, especially when we got married, and I still find myself singing into it with any type of giving, is how much do we have to give? All right, maybe I'm the only one, but, maybe, but like that, that's how I approach it. Like that's my, always my first thought, how much do we have to give? What's the minimum? And over time, God is just trying to sanctify me and using my wife in the process because her question is, whenever we're given an opportunity that relates to the church, that relates to something connected to the church, to building the kingdom, she goes, how much can we give? I want to give more. Aaron, make more money, all right? (laughs) Why can't we give more? And, 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 but the reality is we want to live our lives in such a way where we have room and margin to be faithfully generous to the ministry of Grace Church and spontaneously generous outside of that. And that principle can be taken from the financial realm and applied to all of our lives. How much of myself can I give 
to the building up of the body of Christ and investing in the kingdom of heaven. So the tension for Jesus and the people there, should we pay them? Beyond that, you could apply that to any kind of non-Christian authority in your life. Your, your boss, your coach, your teacher, your non-believing parents. And the answer is always the same. Honor it. Give honor where honor is due. Give part of yourself to the worldly authorities as much as is appropriate to be an engaged citizen or a student or employee and then be faithful in giving all of yourself to God who has been utterly faithful in giving it all to us. Like we love and give ourselves to him. Why? Because, like this is the main principle of it all, he first loved and gave it all to us. To a God who did not hold anything back, not even his one and only son, but sent him into the world to save us from our sin and be our substitute in death so that we might have life. So I began preparing this sermon and my honest first reaction was like, oh no. (laughs) We're starting the year with this? Like how did I, that was terrible planning by you. But honestly, as I finished, it dawned on me, this is the perfect year, perfect sermon to start a new year with. Because the main point is us committing and recommitting our whole selves to the Lord. And asking yourself, where are you holding back? We all are in some area or another. Where are the areas in our life where we're still saying, how much do I have to give to him? What's the minimum? And may God grant us the grace to turn it all over to him, to change the question to how much can I give? How generous can I be with my time? How generous can I be with my talent? How generous can I be with my treasure to build up the body of Christ? So let it be true of all of us that we're gonna give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but more importantly, we're gonna give to God what's God's. Let's pray.